We've been hearing over the past few weeks the ways in which human beings are created to be pointed towards worship of God and love of others. This is what we're created for. This is what we've been designed for. Unfortunately, a quick look at our world shows we don't often live that way, do we? Brokenness is so prevalent in our world, and there is a strong tendency to turn inwards, to focus on ourselves. There's this term in Latin, which we think was maybe coined by St. Augustine, and it's this phrase, incurvatus in se, and it means curved inward on oneself. Augustine and others use this term to describe a life that is focused inward for oneself rather than outward for God and for others. This shows itself, I think, in how we live, in the ways that we are so often to treat one another and tempted to treat one another. But this is also true in our broader cultural conversation. So much of our lives often tend to be focused on preserving our own cultural team or tribe. If you notice any of the conversations we have on a broad level, as a country, on social media, that kind of thing, they tend to be tribal conversations that are focused on trying to get my team or my group to win, to dominate your team or your group, to own you, to prove that my team is right and should lead the way. I think some of that comes from a natural tendency to preserve those who are perceived family or community to anybody else that, that poses a threat. I think there's something in us that maybe is just kind of part of the deal of being human that comes with that temptation. But it also reveals how our hearts are so often curved in, how we often look for ourselves first. Well, today our readings illustrate a contrast between the incurvatus in say life and the way of being and the Jesus life and the Jesus way of being. So our Old Testament reading picks up after the congregation of Israel has been delivered from Egypt and they find themselves wandering in the desert and they're led from place to place and it says, as the Lord commanded. So God is leading them every step of the way. But in the desert, as you can imagine, they have some real needs. Some real needs begin to emerge and their presenting need is that they're thirsty. They need water. The wilderness, of course, is a place with no water. They remember that they had this covered in Egypt, even though they were in slavery. Here they are on the edge. They don't know where their next drink of water is coming from. Now, I wonder if you know what it's like to be so hungry that you just want to fight somebody. You ever had this experience? (laughs) Or you know the feeling when you're on a long commute home from work and you know you have food at home, but you are hungry and that fast food looks really good. Sometimes it's not even fast food. Sometimes you stop at the grocery store to get groceries for that evening, and there's some candy right there that looks really enticing. You're so hungry, and it looks so good. You want to meet that need right now, even though you know it's not best for your body or for your wallet. (laughs) Now, these are, of course, short-term needs. Many of us today are not really worried about, like many in our world are, of where your next meal is coming from. You know you're gonna be okay. If you don't get fed that instant, you're gonna make it home fine. But there are deeper needs in our lives. We all long for peace in the midst of anxiety, for community, for friendship, in the midst of loneliness, for security when we feel unsteady, or for love in the midst of rejection. And if anything is clear from scripture, 
One thing that is clear is we can bring those real needs to God. We can trust God with those needs. In fact, that is the best place to bring them. Even though the desert, that place of need, that place on the edge, seems like a God-forsaken place, it's not. God is still with Israel, and God is still with us. Still, feeling God's absence, the Israelites complain, and they complain to Moses. So we talked about this a little bit last week, but this, this deeper angst, this existential angst, this physical hunger they're having is directed on Moses, our leader, must have done something wrong. They assume he brought them from Egypt only to make them and their children and their livestock die of thirst. They think they would be better off in Egypt. Well, Moses' job as their leader is to remind them of their story, of who they are. They are questioning him, but they're really questioning God because it's God who led them there. Often when we find ourselves in our most vulnerable, dependent places, we turn to the thing we think will most satisfy us or quickest satisfy us. For the children of Israel, the last place they remember their needs being fully met, the last place they remember we had our physical needs met was in Egypt. Now, they were in slavery in Egypt, but at least they had water there. For us, the place where we turn when we're most vulnerable Maybe performance, getting, uh, knowing that we can get certain accolades if we do certain things the right way. Approval, trying to get everybody to like us. Workaholism, just diving into this is one thing I can control is I can just work and earn really, really hard. We may turn to shopping to meet a need, alcohol, pornography, because at least we know I can be in control of that I can meet my need that way. What we so often forget is this thing that we used to turn to is slavery for us. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with performing well. There's nothing wrong with getting other people's approval. There's nothing wrong with work or shopping or alcohol or sex. All of these things are good in their, in their context. The problem is when we depend on them to meet our needs, they become little gods for us. So the question that we ask in times of need and in feelings of abandonment is the same question the Israelites ask. Is God here? Is the Lord among us? Where is God? Now, we've been reading this story of Israel. So to us, it seems like this should be obvious. Hey, we just read a few weeks ago that you, got, you guys crossed the Red Sea because God delivered you. Why, why do you forget that? Why do you have this need? Of course God is with you. Remember the whole plagues thing and the Red Sea and God set you free? And yet their needs caused them to doubt. Well, what Moses does when they turn to him is Moses turns to God, which is really what God's people should be doing in that moment. Crying out to God is always the appropriate posture in times of need. This is what the Israelites did when they were in slavery in Egypt. They cried out to God and God responded. But Moses is scared. He's afraid. He says, what am I to do with these people? They're so hungry. They're about ready to stone me. Well, God doesn't give Moses leadership advice. He doesn't tell him, here's how you deal with the people doesn't give him political advice. He just tells him how to get water. God hears them and he responds. Israel's deepest questions are answered here. And God's instruction to Moses is this, pass before the people. Now think about this. 
if Moses is really afraid they're going to stone him, if that's real, God's first instruction is scary. Pass in front of the people. <laughs> These people that are about to stone you go there. So Moses himself is called to dependence. Does he trust God to save him from the people? We see in the story that God does provide. He tells Moses to hit a rock and water will come out. This is cool in a literary sense because Moses thinks stones are gonna lead to his death. He's about to be stoned, but it's actually a stone that brings the water of life to the people. Then this place is named. The double name Masa Meribah means this is a place of divine testing or shaping. Israel's mistake here is not doubting God's presence. We're all gonna doubt God's presence at times in our lives. Their mistake is demanding God do something to prove his presence with them. They want God on their own terms rather than on God's terms. They will only believe in God if he shows himself the way they believe he should. Now, if you read this, the, the reading never says God was not going to provide for his people. It never says he was not going to give them water. It's not that God needed to be moved in order to give them water. God's people had a real need, but they lacked confidence in God that this real need would be met. So they looked for alternatives. And that is an ongoing theme of Israel's story. And it's often the reality of our stories as well. One of the best definitions I know for sin, I learned this from my dad, who's a therapist. And one of the best definitions for sin I know is Sin is an inappropriate response to a legitimate need. An inappropriate response to a legitimate need. We all have real needs in our life and the need is not a sin. We are ever tempted to get that need met in ways that are either inappropriate or at least unhelpful for us. The children of Israel experience their need and they think it means God's left them. God's abandoned them. Each of us will experience need on a regular basis. God doesn't promise a life where we won't need anything, but he does promise he will meet our needs, not always in ways that we choose or in our timing, but he will always be faithful. Notice this. So, so Moses uses his staff to strike the rock. This is the same staff that God used to strike the Nile River. This is a reminder that the same God who brought the plagues on Egypt and delivered his people is the same God who provides for them now. He's been with them the whole time. Another important element here is that God is not transactional. So the gods of the ancient world, the way it worked is you did something for them, you offered them a sacrifice, and then they would do something in turn for you as a transaction. But what this story and the Old Testament shows us time and time again is our God doesn't work that way. That the relationship is deeper than that. Israel's God is different. He takes the initiative to respond to Israel and is not conditioned by Israel. This isn't because Israel did a really great sacrifice and performed really well. No, God is faithful based on his own initiative. Our epistle reading that we read is, is one of the most I think, profound declarations of the nature of God in Christ. Paul says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Have you heard this new online trend that's happening? It's one of the most like random ones that I've ever seen, but wives are asking their husbands a simple question. How often do you think of the Roman Empire? Okay. And, and wives are asking their husbands, and they're being shocked at the response. Okay. So a lot of times these guys are going every day or three times a week or something like that. How often do you think of the Roman Empire? And this has gone viral, this question of you know, all the stuff that's happening. And the wives are, are flabbergasted. How could you possibly think of an ancient empire that often? Well, my results are skewed because it's an occupational hazard, right? <laughs> I'm constantly studying the Roman Empire <laughs> because it's the, wor- it's the world of the New Testament writers, right? And, and in Paul's time, so I'm going to talk about the Roman Empire for a minute. So apparently you guys are going to love this, according to the, the videos. But in, in Paul's time, the emperor Caesar Augustus had, had won a bunch of military victories, and he had set himself up as lord. In fact, the words that were used for him are kind of surprising. Lord, son of God, and savior were often used to describe Caesar Augustus. So the entire Roman family, Caesar and his wife and his son, they were all worshipped as gods. It was said that they became gods by a process called apotheosis. So they actually became or or attained their godlike status. So Paul has this kind of running in the background as he's writing this this letter to the church at Philippi. And, And he paints this picture of Jesus who shares in the nature of God. So Jesus is God. He shares in God's nature. But Jesus doesn't use that as an excuse to dominate, right? Caesar and his family used this apotheosis that was just an invented thing to dominate other people, right? That was their propaganda. But Jesus is in the very nature of God, and he doesn't insist on his own way, and he doesn't control others for his own gain. Everything that Christ does in bringing salvation is the opposite of selfishness or selfish ambition. Verse 7 continues, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So in contrast to apotheosis, where the Caesar Augustus becomes or attains godhood, Jesus makes himself nothing. Now, Paul doesn't mean... Jesus was divine, and then he stopped being divine. No, it's actually the opposite of that. Listen to this. So by making himself nothing, laying down himself, his privilege for the sake of others, Jesus reveals to us what it means to be God. This is who God is, the one who gives himself for the world. This is God. Notice where Jesus' power comes from in what Paul says. From his love. This is not a dominating kind of power that coerces people into submission. That's Caesar's power. God's power is giving. The kind of power that meets a person where they are, grieves with their pain and their hurt and in their sin, and heals them through love. In Christ, we experience the transformation of our incurvatus in say by the one who made himself nothing. In this radical love, the world is changed. Finally, in our gospel reading, the the chief priests and the elders are, are trying to figure out like by what authority Jesus is doing his stuff. 
So he's ridden into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. He's cleansed the temple. He's healing people. All of these events are really scandalous because they show that Jesus is more than just a teacher. He has some authority over the temple structure. Jesus' actions challenge the religious leader. So is this guy being who we think he's trying to be? In fact, there's one central question that they want to ask Jesus. It's like on the tip of their tongue, and they really want to ask him, are you the Messiah? But they can't really ask him that because politically it would cause all kinds of problems for that. So they have to build up a case and they bring it to him. So instead of asking him, are you the Messiah? They ask him, so what's your authority? How are you doing this stuff? Typically what would happen is if you asked a rabbi that, they would go, well, I have the authority of Moses. He's the one, the law is, is where the authority comes from. And this is just my interpretation of the law. But Jesus seems to speak in a way that he has different authority or authority that's greater than that. So Jesus responds by asking them, what do you think about John the Baptist? Seems like he's dodging, he's not. What authority was he using? Was it of heaven or human origin? This is significant, of course, because Jesus' entire ministry was preceded from the baptism of John. And if you remember, when Jesus was baptized, there was a voice from heaven, the Father, that said, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. So Jesus is saying, what do you think of John's ministry? The religious leaders here are stuck. They're in this political predicament, right? If they affirm John the Baptist, they're just affirming Jesus. So if they say John the Baptist's authority is from heaven, then it's like they've given in to Jesus' authority. But if they say John was just an ordinary human or had ordinary human authority, the crowd's going to freak out. So they say, we don't know. And Jesus acknowledges to the people that if they can't answer that question, he can't shed or won't shed any further light on their first question. Jesus then tells them a parable, a parable of two sons. One says he's not going to do the work that his father has for him in the vineyard. And then he goes later and does the work anyway, all right? So he says he's not going to do the work, and then he does it. The other says, sure, I'll do the work, but he never does it. Jesus says, which of the two did what his father wanted? Of course, the first is better because he actually did the work. But what is the work in Jesus' parable? In Jesus' story, and he says this clearly, the ragtag group that he's been hanging around with, the sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes, they're like the first son. With their lives, they have said no to God previously. But now they're responding to John's calling to repent. They're responding then to Jesus. The Jewish leaders who are addressing Jesus are like the second son, they say yes to God. They say they're doing God's will. They're worshiping in the temple. They're keeping up appearances, but they refuse to believe in John's message. Those who seem to be flouting God's will end up being baptized by John. Those who seem to be following God's instructions to the letter refuse to do so. So when we talk about the work here, doing the work, this isn't good works. So this sometimes is preached as a, um, so see, you've got to just, Go do all the good works, and then you'll be part of the kingdom. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. He's not commending the tax collectors and the prostitutes because they straightened up, by golly, and now they live better lives. They go first to the kingdom, not because of that, but because they repented. 
They trusted in God. They knew they needed forgiveness and healing. Sometimes we can get so focused on our own desire for control. Our heart is so curved inwards. We forget about the radical generosity of God for us and for others. These chief priests and elders had allowed their desires to keep up appearances, to become so ingrained in them, they weren't actually doing what God had called them to do, to trust in Jesus. In fact, this isn't about moral performance at all. The chief priests and the elders did really good things. They lived morally upright lives. The tax collectors and sinners didn't. In fact, I love the early church father, John Chrysostom, said these two words, prostitutes and tax collectors, represent the two great sins engendered by violent lust, sex and money. We might nuance his words to say prostitutes and tax collectors are not just those who have sinned. We often quickly think that way by their own choices, though that, that is true as well probably. But they're those who have been deeply affected by those two great idols in our world. They've been influenced by that. Their lives, some by their own choice and some by their environment, have been controlled by these two great idols. Again, there's nothing wrong with sex. It's given by God. There's nothing wrong with money. It's necessary for the running of society. But the two are easily chased in our world as substitutes for legitimate needs for peace, relationship, and security. Some, when reading this parable, speculate the second son intentionally didn't do what his father asked to make a point. So one way to think about that is the second son had done the father's will his whole life. He had, he's sick of being the one who always does things right while the father is gracious with the other brother. This isn't fair. Grace doesn't make sense. And that leads us to ask, it leads them to ask, wait, by what authority is Jesus welcoming sinners and tax collectors? We talk a lot about grace in the church, but at the end of the day, I think many of us don't like it very much. <laughs> it seems better if good people are celebrated and welcomed and included, and those we consider bad people should be isolated and rejected. But the scandal of the kingdom is Christ's arms are open to all, and it all comes down to trust. But here's what's cool. A radical view of grace will transform our behavior and our character. That much is clear. When we are grateful for the fact that we've been welcomed into God's family, that will turn us towards those in desperate need of that welcome. So everything changes in light of gratefulness. Our posture towards ourselves, we remember God has welcomed me. We remember that over and over again. It gets at the core of who we are. Our posture towards others, what a joy this is for my neighbor that they have been welcomed in by grace. And our posture towards the world, our understanding that all of our resources that we have are just merely gifts of God. So the cure for incurvatus in se is not moral performance. It's not just be better, just care for other people more, gut it out. The only remedy for incurvata sensei is allowing God's grace, God's great undeserved love for you to transform the core of who you are. 
This is the reason around here. I talked with a few people about this this week. But the reason why we observe patterns around here and rituals and traditions is simply we are seeking to live into the rhythms of grace that have this transforming effect. And the reason I preach a sermon (laughs) is to remind you of the good news of God's overwhelming grace. So may we know the one who has delivered us, the one who does not grasp for power but makes himself nothing. May we know the one who has all authority because he is God and reveals God by healing the brokenhearted and welcoming those who are far off. And may we know he is the same God who meets us today in the midst of our need. Amen.